Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. This week on Behind the Knife, we are lucky enough to have the new chair of surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Gerard Doherty. In honor of that, we decided to bring back a long lost feature of Behind the Knife, uh, the random fact of the day. Enjoy. So, Jay and John, one of the things we haven't done in a long time is a little bit of a random fact of the day. So, I got a little bit of something. What do you guys know about Von Hippolindau? That's one of the things that he's going to, uh, Dr. Doherty, our guest here, is going to talk a little bit about. Any, any of you guys know the history behind that? I know a lot of, uh, a lot of tumors, but there's not a lot, I don't know a lot of history behind it. I know it brings up a lot of anxiety whenever I'm asked about it in front of a group of people. <laughs> well, absolutely. Like most things, actually, the history behind it is very interesting. So I get this from two different sources, of course, one of which is um, Wikipedia. And for all of you guys, it's uh, out there. Just quickly look that up on Wikipedia. It's always interesting to see what the original description of the disease was, but uh, German ophthalmologist Eugene von Hippel first described the angiomas in the eye in 1904, and then uh, Dr. Lindau, Arvid Limbaugh, uh, described the uh, angiomas of the cerebellum and spine. Um, you know, the more interesting thing, though, is that it, it really, the, through the years, it's been talked about a little bit more and more. As a matter of fact, uh, the famous Dr. Cushing and Dr. Bailey in 1928 pointed out that Lindau in 1927 was mainly responsible for showing the connection between the retinal angiomas and CNS lesions. Now, they had a rather long-term follow-up of a patient named Frank McKay who had the full syndrome. And if you look through the years, um, you'll basically see, like most things, is that you can see that how it starts out very small, different people at different times put the connections together. As a matter of fact, Von Hippel in 1904 reported a case report regarding two patients. And his biography of Cushion, Fulton, basically talked about a young Swedish pathologist, Arvid Lindau, who had attracted Cushing's attention in 1927 through a description of this new disease entity, which Cushing appropriately christened Lindau's disease. So the connection between von Hippel, Lindau, and Cushing. And it wasn't until 1964 and truly in the 1970s when Melman and Rosen in 64 reviewed the literature and looked at extensive bunch of kindred. Now, if you go back and you look at um, the Wikipedia page, they even talked about the fact that some descendants of the McCoy family, the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud of Appalachia in USA, are presumed to have von Hippel-Lindau. And there was an article they quote there about the Associated Press that Vanderbilt University endocrinologists suspected that the feud may have been partly due to the consequences of von Hippel-Lindau disease, that the McCoy family was predisposed to bad tempers because many of them had a pheochromocytoma with excess adrenaline and a tendency towards explosive tempers. So uh, whether or not that's true or whether or not it's anything, it's interesting how you go from the Hatfield and McCoys all the way to the Cushings. And that is your random fact of the day. So welcome to another episode of BTK. Uh, we are absolutely pleased to have Dr. Jerry Doherty, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief and Chair of the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Dr. Doherty, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
You know, sir, we'd like to start off these things. Obviously, you're a very well-known endocrine surgeon, and uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you during uh, one of the complex general surgery boards, but we have a lot of listeners from all different uh, training uh, times in their, uh, where, where they're at their training cycle, and give us a little bit of background uh, from you. Where'd you grow up? Um, how did it come in so that you got involved in medicine and then surgery? Where'd you train and eventually found yourself here as the surgeon-in-chief in the chair department of surgery at uh, Brigham and Women's? Sure. So um, I uh, was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, it was a great place to grow up. It was a lot of fun. I'm the oldest of uh, six in a big Irish Catholic family, um, a lot of cousins around and things growing up. Um, I left Pittsburgh to go to Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, where actually my wife was a classmate. We've been married almost 34 years now. Um, after four years at Holy Cross, I went to Yale for medical school um, and then on to University of California at San Francisco for my surgery training. I spent a couple of years during surgery training at the National Cancer Institute um, doing some clinical and uh, basic science work in mostly endocrine tumors um, before finishing up at UCSF in 1993. So when I finished at UCSF, I took a, my first faculty position at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and we took our young family there. Our son had been born in San Francisco during the uh, end of my residency, and uh, our daughter was born um, not too long after we got to St. Louis. Um, I worked at Barnes Hospital and the uh, safety net hospital in town, which was called St. Louis Regional Medical Center. Um, along with um, some other um, folks who staffed St. Louis Regional while we were all getting our laboratory work underway. Um, Jeff Drebin was a junior faculty member in the same spot, and uh, Perrin Cobb was another of the junior faculty around that same time. Um, so after a couple of years at uh, St. Louis Regional, I, I started doing more uh, endocrine surgery at Barnes Hospital and, and the lab had kind of gotten up and going and um, it was an exciting time. It was a lot of interesting work to do. It was then that I became quite interested in multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 syndromes uh, because of the large families that were followed through Sam Wells' leadership as the chair of the Department of Surgery at WashU. Uh, and kind of developed that as a, an area that I, I tried to understand as much about as I could. I was at WashU for about 10 years um, before being uh, recruited away to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to become the chief of general surgery there. Uh, it was at the time of the retirement of Norman Thompson, who was one of the fathers of endocrine surgery, and, and so I went there to sort of... Um, take over some of the, the work that he had done and to participate with an outstanding endocrinology and endocrine surgery group in Ann Arbor, um, and then to run the general surgery group and, and be the program director for the general surgery residency. Uh, we stayed in Ann Arbor for about 10 years. Our kids were adolescents there. Both of them graduated from high school in Ann Arbor. And then about uh, five and a half years ago, we uh, left Ann Arbor to come to Boston, where I was the chair of surgery at Boston University and the chief at Boston Medical Center, uh, which is a safety net hospital here in 
in eastern Massachusetts was a wonderful uh, place to be and, and a place that I thought I might uh, spend the rest of my career until um, being enticed to move just across town to Brigham and Women's Hospital. So I've just joined um, this position over the last six months. Yeah, that, and, uh, Dr. Dory, that must have been a big step for you. What was it like going through that change from Boston to Brigham and Women's? Like what, uh, what went into that type of decision? Was there a significant interview process? Uh, were you excited to move? Yeah, so I would say I was not um, uh, looking to move. It was, uh, was not a, uh, something that I was trying to, to leave Boston Medical Center. It's a wonderful place with a tremendous role in the community in Massachusetts and great work being done there. Uh, the opportunity at Brigham and Women's was a little bit unexpected. Mike Zinner uh, decided to retire, and um, obviously I knew and respected Mike a great deal. Joe Lascalzo, who is the uh, chair of medicine at Brigham and Women's and was the uh, head of the search committee to re replace Dr. Zinner, um, called me and, and asked me if I would um, apply and, and come over and take a look and see, see what the place was like. Joe had been the chief of medicine at Boston Medical Center, so he was very familiar with the, the place that I was in currently, and he and I had some very frank discussions about the advantages and disadvantages of changing uh, leadership jobs within the same uh, community. And he convinced me that there were opportunities to contribute in this new position in ways that I, I wouldn't have if I had remained at, at Boston Medical Center. So I owe a lot of, of insight there to, to Joe. It, it was the, the usual um, protracted interview process that I think for, for anybody who um, is thinking about uh, looking at one of these leadership positions, it's um, it can be a little bit um, daunting. Uh, the, they usually start with a rapid cycle interview. Uh, we call it it's usually about a dozen people on the search committee, and you sit down with them for a short period of time, 45 or 50 minutes, and they ask scripted questions, usually making one cycle around the table, each of them asking uh, a question. And, and they do that so that they can ask the same questions of each candidate and be able to compare the responses and so on. I think the um, important thing for candidates in that kind of situation is to recognize that it's much more important to be the right match for the job than it is to be the best person in some way. Every institution has particular needs and problems that they're trying to solve with their next recruit for a position. And so it's, um, it's important at least I've found it's important just to be yourself, and then you learn through the process about whether that matches up with what they're trying to solve. So one of the things that comes up is, no matter what the level is, you've you've been on the on the interviewee and the interviewer side of the house. What do you tell people about those who are maybe not even looking for another job or looking for another job or asked to visit another place? What advice do you give to them about being worried about what their home institution may think or, or react if they find out that they're out there looking at another job? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I um, talk to our faculty about that um, when I, whenever I get a chance. I, I think it's 
fine to look at other jobs. Um, and in fact, I've always found that I've learned something about myself and something about the place when I go to another institution and, and I'm trying to learn about whether this be a good opportunity or not. My advice to folks is, you know, not to look at a job that you could never imagine taking. So, you know, if your family is committed to Chicago and you're never going to leave Chicago um, and you're certainly never moving to California, there's no sense, you know, wasting everybody's time by looking at a job in Los Angeles. Um, on the other hand, if if there is a job that seems possible that you, you know it might be a fit, it, you know, it, it's, I think, a good learning experience to uh, look at a few of these things along the way. I do think it's important to let your home institution know that you're looking at the job and, and what the situation is, why you're looking. Um, I talked to the CEO at Boston Medical Center before I even told Joe Lascalzo that I would consider looking at it. I, I um, thought I owed it to her to have a discussion, and, and she was quite supportive uh, of, of looking at the role. But I think when people, as a as a leader or somebody's supervisor, when you get insulted is when people don't um, have the courtesy to let you know what's going on. And, and so I think it is... Um, it, that does put you in a little bit of an awkward position, especially if um, the supervisor finds out that you're looking at a job through some other pathway. You know, they hear back from somebody you met with while you're out of town that you're off looking at a job. And that that leads to some mistrust. So I'd kind of discourage that one. Just one more question before we dial, delve into our section of the day. We, you know, whether it's the president of the United States or a chair of a department or taking over the division. What are your thoughts about coming into a new job? I mean, I know that in a, you have a small world, you kind of know the field through the interview process, but what advice do you give to people about joining a new team, joining a new institution, those first few months on the job, establishing yourself, but also getting a lay of the land, identifying your people, your needs, and then kind of the pace of which you go forward? Right. That's a great question. And I've, I've done this three times now, moving into leadership positions at the same time as I joined an institution at, at Michigan, Boston Medical Center, and now the Brigham. And obviously, I've tried some strategies that worked a little bit and some things that didn't work at all. Uh, what I've found to be most helpful is to, to start out by trying to get to know the people in your division or department as well as you can, and to try and understand the institution as a series of micro-environments. So, you know, if you sit in your office and you understand the institution as you know, what comes across your desk in PowerPoint presentations and spreadsheets, um, that gives you one view of the institution, but that doesn't tell you what it's like for the you know, person who spends 90% of their time in the breast center. And you know, all of their experience of that institution is by their microenvironment. And so what I've tried to do is to, to set up meetings, a lot of meetings, with people in their offices, go meet in their space, um, so that you understand, you know, what pictures are on their walls, what seems to be important to them, and what their experience of being there is like. Uh, and that's helped me, I hope, to get up to speed a little more quickly than I might otherwise. I think you owe a lot to the the people that you join. If you go in in a some kind of supervisory capacity, you're you have a lot of obligations to the people who have been there. 
Uh, and it, you know, the biggest obligation is to get to know them and their problems to make sure you can represent them well. All right. Well, excellent. Well, I think with that, we'll uh, delve into our dissection of the day. And the dissection of the day is the segment of, of the podcast where we delve more in depth about a specific uh, surgical topic. Um, and since we have you, uh, we'd, we'd like to talk more about uh, endocrine surgery. And specifically, I think we'd like to start off talking a little bit about uh, some pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Now, for myself and I think a lot of our listeners out there in the general surgery community, these are things that show up on tests that we very rarely, if ever, see in actual clinical practice. But for you, it's something that that you probably do see in clinical practice. So just to start off, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how these patients actually present. You know, what what you kind of see in your clinical practice, and how you first first kind of approach the patients that are that are referred to you with these problems. Sure. So it's a, a great topic and obviously one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. The presentation of neuroendocrine tumors has changed a lot over the last 25 years. Um, so currently, the by far the most common presentation of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors is from incidental discovery on imaging tests. You know, people have MRIs or CT scans for all different reasons and they're found to have these small neuroendocrine tumors um, that are often not a progressive problem. They, they fall into you know, the categories of a lot of different kinds of tumors that we now find out about in the prostate or the thyroid where um, you know, we, we almost wish we didn't know about them in some ways, but now that we know about them, we need to kind of help sort them out and follow them. Um, and and the, the management of those is based largely on size. Um, so the, the smaller the tumor, the less likely they are to progress. And, and um, depending on the age of the patient and the size of the tumor, you need to work out some reasonable follow-up plan for the small tumors. For bigger tumors, um, you know, they, they become, I, I kind of divide their problems into two categories. There's the uh, malignancy aspect or the oncologic aspect of their management and the endocrinology aspect of their management. Most of these are non-functional, and so we end up just managing them based on their size. You know, a, an appropriate anatomic resection for tumors that are, um, you know, certainly above a couple of centimeters, and, and we're still working out the best size criteria to use. The more interesting patients, in some ways, are the ones that present with some kind of syndrome, um, where we're really looking at the endocrinologic workup, and that's how these patients presented more often early in my career. That you know, they would come in through the endocrinologist because they had um, uh, weight gain and low blood sugars and neuroglycopenic symptoms, or they had severe ulcer disease. And so we would posit that maybe they had an insulinoma or a gastronoma um, that needed to be managed. And we came up with some very sort of deliberate uh, rules for evaluating these people because um, it, if you get the evaluation out of order, or you don't do the endocrinologic evaluation properly, you can really get the patient in a bind with um, imaging uh, things that, that aren't important and so on. So the first step in those patients where we think there might be a syndrome is to establish the syndrome. Uh, so for uh, somebody with neuroglycopenia and um, documented low blood sugars, it, the issue becomes documenting that they have endogenous 
hypoglycemia not due to some factitious uh, administration of, of uh, drugs. So we do what was originally called a 72-hour fast, which is a supervised fast that we'd look for hypoglycemia and then document low blood sugars and high blood insulin um, at the same time as we would rule out uh, injection of insulin by measuring um, pro-insulin or, or other um, markers of endogenous production, um, as well as, as ruling out oral hypoglycemics with urinary tests. Um, it turns out this doesn't usually take 72 hours. About 50% of the patients have the diagnosis made within the first 12 hours of the fast. And most of us, if we were naming the test now, we'd probably call it a, either just a supervised fast or a 48-hour fast or something because almost nobody gets the 72 hours. For the patients with severe ulcer disease, we have um, a variety of criteria to look for gastronomas. The most important thing is to document an elevated gastrin with simultaneous acid in the stomach, uh, since acid in the stomach should shut off physiologic gastrin production. Um, so we need to look for elevated gastrin um, in a patient who's not on acid-suppressing medications, um, and you know the most common cause of an elevated gastrin is pernicious anemia with um, a loss of acid production in the stomach leading to uh, an elevated gastrin there. And so we'd establish the, the diagnosis biochemically. There are a few other um, endocrinologic symptoms or syndromes that can come along with the, uh, these patients, like a vipoma syndrome, for example, but they're much more rare. Certainly, gastronome and insulinome are the two most common. Once we established that the patient had or likely had a, a um, pancreatic tumor cause of the of their syndrome, we'd look for familial um, syndromes. So does this patient have MEN1 or not? And do that with a careful family history as well as some directed testing for the patient. Uh, do they have an elevated calcium and elevated PTH, for example? Um, and Sally Carty in, at the University of Pittsburgh has done some nice work on the familial features that would tip one off to um, the presence of a a uh, MEN1 syndrome, you know, asking the patient if anybody in their family has had pancreas tumors or pituitary tumors or, or kidney stones or calcium problems and so on. Once we sort of... Oh, oh sorry, sorry, go just ahead. A really quick, yeah, just really yeah. quickly, right on that part. Outside of the familial things, yeah. are there any risk factors for the development of these type of pancreatic tumors? Uh... Not that I'm aware of. So the the um, the familial issue is the biggest one. Uh, there are patients who get other tumors as a result of having one of these tumors. So, for example, patients can get gastric carcinoids sort of driven by the elevated gastrin level in gastrinoma or MEN1. Um, but I'm not aware of any other risk factors um, other than familial syndromes. Now, there are some familial syndromes beyond MEN1. Uh, so, um, on Hippolindau, for example, patients can have uh, neuroendocrine tumors as well, although almost never functional tumors. Okay, and uh, so we were uh, we were talking about the family history. Please continue. Yeah. So once we've uh, kind of established whether or not we think the patient has a family history, if they have a family history of MEN1 or or they appear to be an MEN1 carrier. 
um, then it sort of drives a whole uh, different set of, of management because we're we're managing a field effect. All of their pancreas is at risk for the tumors, um, and we, we need to sort out what the best way to manage them is going to be. And it's not always operation to try and remove all the tumors. The um, but in either case, we want to manage the hormonal syndrome before we move on to other things. So for gastrinoma, for example, we can always manage the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome with sufficient doses of acid-suppressing medications. There are no patients in whom uh, that's not possible. So it may require quite high doses of either H2 blockers or proton pump inhibitors, but we can always get the the acid suppression uh, in place so that the patient's not at risk for um, significant ulcer disease or ulcer complications around time of an operation. Insulinoma is a little harder. Um, you know, we can um, manage it somewhat with uh, diet or, or diazoxide, and a few patients, octreotide will work a little bit, but, but we don't do very well at managing the syndrome in insulinoma. For most of the rare um, neuroendocrine tumor syndromes like uh, VIPoma or glucagonoma, octreotide is effective. At, um, at suppressing the, the hormone release. So um, those things work quite well. And it's in sort of simultaneous with this treating the symptoms of the hormone excess um, that we first get the imaging. And, and this is the most common mistake that we see is that people get the imaging too early. So they get a patient in the hospital who's you know, got a little GI bleeding and somebody measures the gastrin and it's too high and they haven't documented acid in the stomach, but they think this must be a gastrinoma. So then they get a, an x-ray, and it shows a couple of cysts in the liver and maybe kind of a chunky pancreas. And now all of a sudden, they think the patient has a gastrinoma when really they just have um, pernicious anemia and a, a funny-looking pancreas, and, and they've gotten themselves down a path they shouldn't be on. Um, so it's important that we don't get the imaging studies um, in these patients who are presenting with the syndrome until we're really sure that the syndrome is there. In terms of what imaging studies work, I'd say it's, it's a little bit specific to which tumor type. Uh, for insulinoma, I always, always get some kind of cross-sectional imaging like a MRI or a CT scan um, just to make sure there's no mets or other surprises. Um, but the most effective imaging that we have is an endoscopic ultrasound. Um, and that's been the best thing at spot finding, especially the small tumors in the head of the pancreas. It's been very accurate, and, and most of the, the uh, EUS practitioners now can also put a needle uh, into the tumor and, and get you a diagnosis of neuroendocrine tumor if, if that's important. Often that's been done before we even see the patient. For gastronoma, I think a cross-sectional study is again important, and then um, the octreotide scan can be very useful. Octreotide scan doesn't work very well for insulinomas because they don't have the right expression of somatostatin receptors, but for gastrinoma, it's very useful. I just want to take a second to kind of circle back. We've talked Please. a lot about, you know, the, the more common ones, the insulinomas, the gastrinomas. But for, yeah. you know, the medical students and, you know, interns and everybody out there out listening, uh, you know, can you just briefly talk about, you know, what are the other ones that, that the, the more rare um, neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas? Sure. The, the two main ones are um, VIPomas, or the tumors that make vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, uh, and glucagonomas that, that make glucagon. 
Um, they have their own syndrome. So the VIP OMA patients have a secretory diarrhea, um, which we it, it sort of clinically diagnose as having more than three liters of diarrhea a day. Um, and the diarrhea does not get better when the patient is NPO. Um, so the, the patient has diarrhea whether they're eating or not. Um, and then those patients have an elevated serum VIP level. Uh, the glucagonoma patients have their own syndrome, so they um, tend to have new onset of, of uh, type 2 diabetes, which is unusual in adults, especially if they're thin. Uh, they can have a, a migratory rash um, and, and then this elevated uh, fasting serum glucagon um, that makes the diagnosis for you. Both of those syndromes, the, either the diarrhea with the VIPoma or the, the rash and, and uh, sort of wasting syndrome that goes along with glucagonoma, are very effectively treated with octreotide. Um, so it'll make the, the issues go away in those patients, and that's a good thing to do before you, you know, make them sick by taking them to the operating room. How, how common is the rash, sir? It's, a, you know, it's something we hear. It's pathognomonic for glucagonoma on most of the tests. Is it something you see a lot? So I don't think anybody sees it a lot because there aren't a lot of patients with glucagonomas. Um, I, I would say it's um, for the patients who have a pancreatic glucagonoma where there's a, a significant sized tumor mass, um, I've seen the rash more than half of the time, but we don't see many of those patients. There are also patients who have small glucagonomas in the, the duodenum, um, and they don't seem to have much of a, a syndrome with them at all. Um, they're diagnosed mainly on the staining of the tumor rather than the the uh, systemic syndrome. Now that you have the patient, you have the imaging, and you and you go by what it is. What what are some of the key points in terms of those imaging? How do you determine next steps in terms of medical treatment? Is there a need for some preoperative neoadjuvant therapy in any patients, or when when are we going right to the OR? Yeah. So I'd say the only real preoperative therapy is the treatment of the syndrome. And, and again, it's not that effective in insulinoma, but it's critically important for gastrinoma. And, uh, you know, the, the complication rate if you don't get the acid suppressed beforehand is, is significantly higher. Um, for insulinoma, you know, more than 90% of these are a solitary benign tumor. So it's, a, it's kind of the parathyroid adenoma of the pancreas. Um, so the, if you can find the small tumor and remove it with some low morbidity operative intervention, um, the patient is fixed and, and everybody's happy. There are a few patients, and they're generally older, who have invasive insulinomas. Um, they tend to be bigger tumors, may have positive nodes, may have liver metastases. Uh, and those patients, uh, we generally try to debulk the tumor if we can, uh, if we can get you know, a substantial proportion, 80 or 90% of the tumor out, we'd like to do that. Because we have such poor uh, non-surgical control of the syndrome, it, it's helpful to reduce the tumor bulk and hopefully improve the patient's symptoms. For gastronomas, the um, management depends on the, the sites of the tumor. Um, many of these have a primary tumor in the wall of the duodenum. Um, or in the head of the pancreas, so within the gastronoma triangle that's defined right around the head of the pancreas. Uh, and they often have positive lymph nodes. So the operation for them is focused on resecting the primary tumor and getting a thorough lymphadenectomy in a low morbidity way. Usually we try to do that without a Whipple procedure. 
Um, and the real life-threatening aspect for these patients is when they develop liver metastases. So we, we try and operate on them at least the first time at their initial presentation. I was wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit, just just surgical principles when approaching neuroendocrine tumors. How does the type of tumor affect the resection you're going to do? How does the yep. location, the size of the tumor, what goes in the thought process there, and what are the you know kind of basic surgical tenets of managing these? Sure. So I'd say the the most important of the surgical tenets is kind of making sure that the punishment fits the crime, so to speak. Um, you don't want to do a a bigger operation than is necessary. So, for example, and insulinomas are generally benign, can generally be cured by low morbidity, uh, limited resections of the tumor and, and adjacent pancreas. Uh, so if, the, if an insulinoma is in the distal pancreas, the distal tail, we often do a spleen-preserving distal pancreatectomy as that minimizes our risk of leak and uh, you know, minimizes the risk to the patient of not having to have a, a bigger procedure. For many um, patients and many surgeons, that can be done with a minimally invasive approach, either laparoscopically or robotically. Um, to resect the tumor with with a limited recovery uh, for the patient. For the tumors that are in the right side of the pancreas, as you get over toward the, the neck and the head of the pancreas, um, we'd like to be able to resect the tumor with negative margins or just you know marginal resection, enucleation, um, and put the patient in a, a situation where they can heal from that injury easily. Uh, so if the tumor is in the neck of the pancreas, it's away from the pancreatic duct, um, and we can just take the, the tumor out itself and nucleate it, um, then that seems to be the best option. That's also true in the head of the pancreas. Um, uh, and again, that relationship between the tumor and the pancreatic duct becomes the, the driving decision uh, maker for the surgeon. Um, the gastronomas and, and the other more rare tumors are different because they're, they have more of an oncologic aspect to the resection. Um, they tend to metastasize more both to lymph nodes and to liver. Um, they have a, a threat to the patient's life by uh, the potential development of disseminated disease. And so we tend to be a bit more uh, anatomically and oncologic for those procedures. Um, that is, if it's a distal tumor, we tend to do a a distal pancreatic resection with a formal lymph node dissection. Uh, if it's proximal tumor, um, if it's in the pancreas, I think a Whipple is almost always the right answer for a gastronoma. For the tumors that are small and in the duodenal wall, we've tended not to do a Whipple in the United States, although there are some series from Japan that um, demonstrate that that can have good outcomes as well. Uh, we've tended to uh, shy away from that a bit in the U.S., mainly because of the morbidity of the uh, pancreatic or duodenectomy and trying to match that up with the morbidity of the tumor. We seem to have pretty good uh, local regional control rates with local resections of the duodenum and then uh, peripancreatic lymph node dissection to address those. The VIP, VIP omas and glucagonomas tend to be bigger tumors and they tend to be more distal. Um, in their occurrence, and so they're generally a, a pancreatic tail and body resection along with the local lymph nodes. So I heard you. I heard you mention uh, you know enucleation. 
I was wondering, you know, for those of us out there that aren't doing this every day, what exactly do you mean by annihilation? Are you just popping the tumor out? Is there a rim of tissue? Are you? What do you do if, the, if it's a budding the pancreatic duct? Do you oversow things? Do you leave drains? What's your technique for that? Sure, great question. So um, it, it tends to be a bit tailored for each situation, um, and so you know the the nucleation is easier. Um, the more superficial the tumor is in the pancreas, and the further it is from the duct. So as the tumor is you know gets to be deeper in the pancreas, it becomes harder. And the, the management of the duct can be very tricky when you get these tumors that are very close to the duct itself. Um, my technique has generally been to use intraoperative ultrasounds to help guide the enucleation. Again, this can be done either um, with minimally invasive techniques or more commonly as an open procedure. Um, if something's really easy, you know, it's just hanging off the side of the pancreas and you think you can take it out with a minimally invasive technique, I think that's great. I'll, I've used a hand assist um, for some of those. It's, it's helpful to have one hand in so that you can work your way around the tumor. In terms about the, of the way to divide the pancreas to do this, I um, often use the harmonic scalpel um, to work my way down to the tumor and then around the edge of the tumor. You're, you're basically shelling it out um, of the, the, the pancreas that surrounds it. Um, we don't want to get into the tumor, but you don't necessarily need to have a margin of normal pancreas. There's a lot of little vessels that, that uh, go into the tumor, and so the harmonic is handy for, for managing those things. Um, and if it's very close to the duct, you may spend a lot of time after the tumor is out kind of looking for evidence of leak, oversowing things um, with some absorbable sutures in the, in the uh, surface of the pancreas. I, I Generally, then try and, and uh, get some momentum and stuff the the resulting cavity with some momentum. Put some stitches in to try and hold it there, and then put a couple of drains around the site um, to take care of the inevitable leak. So, in my experience, all of these patients have a leak. It's just a matter of how much of a leak and how well controlled it is. If it's a small, well controlled leak, then you know that. That the drains may be all you need for a little while. Um, if it's a bigger leak that's well controlled, you may need to try some octreotide. Or if it's a an uncontrolled leak, they can you know require percutaneous management post-op, but rarely would need reoperation. When I was at the NCI as a resident, we actually did a randomized prospective um, trial of octreotide starting after the operation in neuroendocrine tumor patients. And we, we stratified the patients for resection, so basically distal resection versus enucleation, um, and randomized them to octreotide or no octreotide perioperatively. Um, and essentially, the, that trial was negative. It showed that there was no difference in the uh, um, amount of leak that they had in their length of time before drain removal. Um, and it, it seemed to have much more to do with the, the technical performance of the operation and the anatomic side of the tumor. There have been a couple of other European randomized trials that, that did show a difference. Um, the the uh, biggest difference that I can see between those trials and the trial that we did with uh, Jeff Norton, who's at Stanford now, um, is that they started the octreotide before the operation, where we started it after the operation. I'm not sure if that would make a real difference or not, but otherwise the trials all seem pretty similar. 
at this point, I have not been using octreotide in a prophylactic sense, but just adding it in if the patient has substantial drainage postoperatively. Okay, and then I guess the grounding out on a section of the day, uh, what's the follow-up for these patients, and what type of surveillance do you have? Does it depend on the type of tumor? Yeah, absolutely depends on the type of tumor. So for the insulinoma patients, you know, most of them are cured if, if there's, um, you know, no uh, evidence of invasion, if it's not one of these more unusual um, uh, malignant insulinomas. Um, then we just follow them clinically and, and don't typically do any re-imaging or anything at later dates unless they have an, another problem. Um, for the gastronoma patients, uh, we follow them with serum gastrin levels. Um, again, we don't typically use adjuvant therapy, either octreotide or, or uh, uh, systemic chemotherapy, unless they have gross residual disease often liver metastasis in the in the case of gastronoma. Uh, and they do require periodic imaging as they, they can develop uh, tumors in the liver. Well, that was fantastic, sir. And that finishes up our dissection of the day. And now it takes us time to go into our tips and tricks segment. This is where we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints to get us out of those sticky situations. So, you know, with you, I know we've been talking a lot about pancreas and the uh, neuroendocrine tumors, but we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about adrenal tumors. And more specifically, just let's pose a situation where you are operating on a right-sided adrenal lesion. Walk us through exposure to that area, and especially with the, the short distance between where the adrenal is and where the IVC is. That's the first start. And then second, if you do get into some bleeding from that adrenal vein or from the IVC, walk us through how you get control of that. Right. So those are great questions. And, and I'll, um, I'll preface this by saying there's, there's essentially three ways we approach a right-sided adrenal tumor. And it depends on the patient. It depends on the size of the tumor. Uh, and it depends on whether or not the, we believe the tumor is malignant. So um, the three ways are a retroperitoneal, um, minimally invasive approach. So with the patient prone um, in a jackknife position, we can place scopes um, inferior to the rib cage and up into the retroperitoneal space and remove small benign adrenal tumors uh, from that direction. It's a great approach um, for those patients with small tumors. Um, it's, it's got some real advantages for patients who've had a lot of surgery from the anterior approach in the past, um, and it, it uh, is also a big advantage uh, in the patients with failed treatment of pituitary Cushing's disease. Uh, if you need to do bilateral adrenalectomies, it's easier to do it from the back because you don't have to change position during the operation. So if you get into bleeding from the, uh, the IVC or the adrenal vein during the retropaired neoscopic approach, it's, it's very easy and almost counterintuitive. Um, so the, the thing to do there is to not suction up the blood and to increase the CO2 pressure uh, in the retroperitoneal space because it will collapse the IVC and you end up with a bloodless field to repair whatever the problem is. It's actually quite remarkable and kind of goes against everything um, that we do with bleeding in, in other situations. Um, the... Uh, the, the more common approach, I think, for many of us is the, the laparoscopic transperitoneal, uh, minimally invasive approach to the adrenal gland and, uh, or to the right adrenal gland. And, and um, for both the laparoscopic and the open adrenalectomy from the um, 
through the transperitoneal approach, the it's important to realize that the IVC is a pretty tough structure. It's actually not that easy to tear. It's not a fragile thing. Um, and so you can manipulate it. You can pick it up with a grasper. You can you know, use that to apply tension to the field to identify the adrenal vein. The adrenal vein itself, though, is fairly um, uh, easy to, to rupture or to tear off of the, the adrenal gland in particular. Um, and when that happens through a laparoscopic approach or an open approach, it, it can bleed pretty quickly. Um, and from the, the laparoscopic approach, turning up the carbon dioxide pressure doesn't um, change things for you. So um, there what I've found is that if you can get a grasper on the IVC near where the bleeding is and lift up and then use your suction to try and clean the field, you can generally um, get things visible that way and, and get a clip on to repair the, the hole or usually it's a, a torn um, right adrenal vein that you've got there. The, the problem with the things, if you don't lift it up, is that the, um, the IVC is kind of at the base of your operative field and the bleeding covers what you need to see. So you have to get something on there to lift the IVC up out of the pool of blood and, and be able to get things cleaned up and, and taken care of. For the open approach, um, the, the, the sort of same rules apply. The uh, IBC is reasonably tough, and if you get a hole in the IBC um, in any situation, whether it's, it's doing an a adrenalectomy or other procedure, what I've found helpful is a couple of long alices. And if you can get some long alices on the IBC sort of above and below wherever the hole is, and again, lift up, you can sort of crimp it shut and and get yourself the exposure that you need to um, to make the repair. I'd say in in all those situations, though, it's um, it's sort of the test of the surgeon how they behave in critical junctures in the operating room. And uh, we've I've done a lot of sort of thinking and and talking about this aspect of of things because we all get into these spots in the operating room and you. You wish you could turn back time a little bit and figure out how to avoid it. But in my experience, the, the effective surgeons, when that happens, do a few things. First, they slow down, and they figure out a way to slow the operation down. They either pack things off or they, they find some way to reset the situation. And then they figure out what they need to do to get themselves in a better position, whether that's call another surgeon make a bigger incision, change the approach from laparoscopic to open, do, do something to kind of turn the situation in your favor. When I've observed people do this well, they also have this habit of thinking out loud. Um, so they don't kind of clam up and, and get quiet. They, they might want the operating room to be quiet, but they don't make themselves quiet. And they, they think out loud what they tell kind of everybody in the room what's going on, you know, what they're worried about. You know, they talk to the anesthesiology team about whatever it is that's going on to try and, and involve the rest of the team in what's going, what's the situation is so that they can be helpful. Um, and, and I think you can actually set yourself up to behave appropriately in that situation by how you act uh, during the rest of the operation. I think there's a, those surgeons who do this kind of thing well um, create an environment in the operating room while they're working uh, in which they are available to people. They've you know, had a little bit of discussion with the anesthesiology team about something 
um, you know, less stressful, um, whether it's, you know, you know, the, what they're doing for the weekend or, uh, something interesting about this patient or something that opens up the lines of communication so that when the situation does get stressful, they've, they've already, um, acknowledged that, that there are other people in the room and that, uh, uh, you know, there are peers who can be, who can be useful in that, um, more difficult and stressful arrangement. Um, and finally, I think the probably the most important thing that the surgeon can do is to cultivate a an air of humility around um, the operation. Uh, you know, if you, if you tell the anesthesiology team, you know, we, we never lose blood in this operation, you might want to temper that with, you know, today I'll prove myself wrong, we'll have a problem, we'll, you know, there's some things that make it clear to everybody that you know you're as fallible as anybody else. You've got experience and you can try and deal with these situations, but you um, are uh, open to the fact that somebody else might have a better idea of how to how to deal with something. So um, I would say it, beyond just the technical aspects of how to deal with bleeding, there are some um, thought and behavioral aspects of how to do that. Well, that was great advice for both dealing with our situation and operating in general, it seems. I think all those things can be applied to essentially all areas of surgery, uh, even outside of general surgery. Uh, but at, at this time, we want to move on to our, our final segment, which is our final five. And this time, we'll go through uh, about five questions. It just gets allows the listeners uh, who don't know you to get to know you a little better. Uh, so our first question um, is, what's on your iPod or what kind of music do you listen to in the operating room? <laughs> so I used to listen to a lot of music in the operating room. And like many surgeons, we had um, different CDs at the time um, for what we used in different types parts of the operation. We had, you know, a little bit uh, rowdier music for closing and so on. Um, over the last probably 15 years, I've stopped having music in the operating room. And, and there were a couple of reasons for that. One was um, we have a lot of instrumentation now where the there are sound aspects to the feedback um, so nerve monitors we use in a lot of cervical operations, for example, have a have some sounds you need to hear. There's alarms on the bovie and so on. And I I I became a little bit concerned that the music was becoming distracting, and and so I've actually turned off the music in the OR. Um, on, on my iPod that, that I you know use mostly when I'm traveling, I listen to some podcasts. Um, I like TED Talks and some of the NPR things. So. Uh, that that's probably a little more my speed now. Well, I hope you stay behind the nice soon too. So. <laughs> that's right. I'll add that one in. <laughs> well, uh, number two, do you have any uh, hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room, outside of the hospital that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Uh, well, um, I'm not sure I have any hobbies or talents inside the operating room, so I'd be adding one if I, <laughs> if I came up with one now. Um, so uh, my wife, Faith, and I like to go to uh, live events of, of various types. I, I'm uh, a fairly avid hockey fan, Boston Bruins fan, and and Boston University College hockey. So I like to go to those things. She's not as much of a, a hockey fan, but we um, enjoy going to theater and musical events and, and things as well. Number three, can you tell us about a favorite trip or vacation that you've been on? Uh, I would say our favorite trip um, was about 
five or six years ago, uh, I had a trip to go to Europe for a different reason, and we added on a couple of days and went to Florence. Um, and I had never, we, neither of us had ever been there before. And, you know, for whatever reason, the weather was beautiful. The city was beautiful. The food was fantastic. We had a great time. It happened to be over Faith's birthday. Um, and so it was, uh, really a magical one we've been trying to recreate. <laughs> question number four, what would you be doing if you're not in medicine? That's a great question. I, um, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't in medicine. I, you know, I I think I decided in high school sometime that that uh, medicine was going to be the right career for me, and and I've never really um, thought what I would do differently. I would say the um, the one thing that I have spent time doing that I enjoyed quite a bit. My one of my uncles was a shop teacher um, at a public school in Pittsburgh, and so in the school breaks and summer times and after school and weekends and all those, I was his gopher more or less for, um, uh, you know, odd jobs around the neighborhood or we'd build a shed for somebody or we'd, um, we both worked for a furniture store, assembling furniture for them and things like that. So I think I would find something else to do with my hands and it might be something in sort of the woodwork aspects. All right. Well, last question, number five, if you could go back in time and you met yourself on your first day of a surgical internship, uh, what one piece of advice would you give yourself, knowing what you know now? Uh, I would say enjoy it. It's going to go fast. Um, there's a lot of great people that you meet, both patients and, and colleagues, um, and it, it's, a, it's a special opportunity to be involved with patients in the medical system this way. So. Uh, savor it as it goes along. Well, Dr. Doherty, we can't thank you enough for joining us here on Behind the Knife. Um, I, just everything from the tip and trick to uh, slow down and add more uh, add more uh, pneumoperitoneum to the retroperitoneal approach to uh, just your thoughts and views on the pancreatic tumor and as well as your thoughts on life. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy man, but uh, I know the listeners will really benefit greatly from this session. Well, thanks, guys. Have a good afternoon. Until next time, dominate the day.